This is Emmy Award-winning creative and marketing executive John Ziegler. It's time to disrupt your business model. Welcome to the Nontrepreneur. Hey guys, today I connect with Graham Newell. Graham is an author, speaker, and the president of 602 Communications, a neuroscience research and consulting firm. Graham shows how to make smarter decisions using the latest brain science insights. Now, Graham doesn't just ask the customer their preferences. He peers inside their brains to see what emotion centers are lit up. Graham has worked with GE, Disney, Sony, CBS, Madison Square Garden, Comcast, and Universal Studios. And I have to tell you, Graham gave two great video presentations during our conversation. Unfortunately, they didn't fully translate to audio alone. So I haven't included them in this episode. Instead, I've posted both of them on my website, thenontrepreneur.com. Or if it's easier to spell, go to setupcampwith2ps.com. Setupcamp.com. Let's talk to Graham. Ladies and gentlemen, Graham Newell. Graham, thank you so much for joining me today. John, I'm so excited to be here. I've wanted to be on the podcast for a while, so thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to have a good conversation with you and talk a little bit more about enterprise and business. Thanks. Love it. As you know, The Nontrepreneur is all about empowering employees by encouraging leaders to think and act like an entrepreneur and to create entrepreneurial environments. And while I know you started years ago punching a clock and working for the man, you've owned your own business for a long time now. So I want to talk to you about what it is you do now, because you've made a business out of studying the brain. And I'm really curious what you've learned specifically during COVID, how businesses have changed, how decision-making has changed, all based on what it is you do now. So why don't we start by you telling the folks listening and the folks watching what it is you do? Yeah, John, I I started out as kind of an advertising guy. I, I was in marketing and was working with a lot of broadcast operations on specific ways that they could market themselves better. And what's neat is, is that I got a really good look at some of the higher technology and some of the neater things that were being done in order to find people's preferences. So what I am now is a behavioral finance expert. And what I do is I share some of the latest neuroscience insights into how people make money decisions. So what I really do is, is I study how customers make those decisions deep inside their brain. And we do that by putting people inside of an MRI. And then we ask them specific questions about investing, about how they're going to make purchase decisions, all, all kinds of things like that. So what's neat is, is I can put things like EEG headsets on people and we can tell the exact moment that they get emotionally engaged. I put stuff like eye tracking glasses on people and then send them inside of stores. What we get back is a specific thing where we match their brain scan with exactly what their stimulation levels when they are in the store. We can also do this for things like website. We can correlate very quickly how their eyes move, how their brain activity is going forward. And all of this we can use to gauge exactly how much they're digging it. Little known fact, our pupils dilate when we feel something. Well, what I can do is measure that. We also use technology of something called facial coding. And what it does is it reads the micro expressions on people's faces. So what's cool is I can see the exact moment when people get bored or hostile or whatever. So what's neat is that now we can see the conscious and the subconscious reactions that people have. And it's given me a whole new way of looking at how people buy and the specific ways that they make decisions about the things they're going to bring into their life. So what the brain readers tell us is that there's really two distinct parts of our brain. There's the conscious brain, and then there's the instinctual brain. 
Now, our conscious brain can do things like math and should I go to college and all the, the, uh, the conscious things that make up our mind most of the time. Now, our instinctual brain, it empowers us to do things automatic without that consciousness. Stuff like recognizing friends and chewing your food and things like that. John, have you had that experience where you've driven to work and kind of looked up and you don't remember anything about where you went? Absolutely. So research tells us that this is how we make decisions. Our instinctual brain feels something. And then what happens is our conscious brain verifies what we already believe. Now, for us, it feels like a conscious decision, but it's not. What it is, is we're simply validating what we already believe. So for almost 2 million years, humanoids have been all about basic survival. Things like not starving to death and finding a cave so you didn't freeze to death. And maybe if you're lucky, finding a good-looking cave lady so you can pass along your DNA to the next generation. Fancy skills like agriculture and living in houses, that's just the last 10,000 years. And it's really only about 2% of human existence. So our caveman brains simply have not had enough time to evolve. So we've done a lot of studying of how our brains react to fear is what we do. We've done a lot of analysis, hundreds of, of examples on it. So when we feel fear, what happens is it's right next to our brainstem. This allows us when we're afraid or something bad is going down to react amazingly quickly. And when we were out on the African savanna, this is what kept us from being eaten by lions because we could react so quickly. Fear is that powerful. And this is where our customers are at right now. They're afraid. In the past, they approached that checkout with nothing but anticipation of the wonderful treats they were going to buy or the stuff that they were going to have. But now it's completely different. We all remember fondly those days of casual social interaction, but they're just a little jumpy right now. And when people go in stores, when they make purchases, they are just really freaked out a little bit about what's going on. So what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that we're really taking care of that. Now, John, have you had that, that experience of opening doors like, like this? <laughs> Anything you know, hand. try not to touch the door, you know, when, when you go in. We, we need it to be like this. Now, fortunately, they, they've come up with the latest gadget on here. You can actually open the door with your foot just like this, you know, and, and it just will open up perfectly for us. That's how freaked out people are right now. They're all really scared. Now, if you look at a lot of the messaging that's been going on during the pandemic, what you'll see is that all these businesses are, are having a hard time finding a way to connect on a deeper level. If you look at that messaging, you'll notice there's a sameness about it. The ads tend to start with these long stretches of sad, tinkly piano music. to brag about how long they've been serving their customers. 100 years. Nationwide has been on your side. Restaurants have always been there for you. Yeah. We After do what we've always done. Take care of people. We're people. 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 And family. 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 Families. 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 Even now. Especially now. Especially now. Right now. Now more than ever. More than ever. Today. More than ever. Today. More than ever. Yeah. So in this next ad, the company congratulates itself for the hard work its own employees are, are doing. Thank you to the men and women at First Energy who are going above and beyond. Oh, I'm so great. Thank you, me. <laughs> I rock it. I, I, I really do, you know. So at the very time when people are really afraid right now, we've got some incredibly inauthentic messaging going on. So 
with our businesses and when we're dealing with customers right now, our default reaction is fear right now. And you've got to show people how your superior product features are going to fulfill a deeply instinctual need for people. So you've got to think of that caveman and what do they want from us right now? They want to know that they're safe. They want to know that they're protected. And they want to know that your business has an agenda that goes way beyond self-interest, but it's about keeping them safe. So let me show you how one big box retailer did did this. And it's amazing that the turnaround that this company did, they, they really did. So Walmart has always defined its product attribute as always low prices. That, that's been its big thing. You know the feeling, the thrill of the save, that secret high from stretching a dollar, that little rush in finding what you need for less. Yeah. So Walmart, unfortunately, that the solo prices are great, but people found they had one big vulnerability. Brands that are built solely on these low price product features, they're the ones that are vulnerable to competitors and to market fluctuations. And Walmart found this out the hard way. They had a backlash on those low prices. Low prices meant they had to cut costs in other ways. People are out uh, to protest uh, Walmart's worker conditions and low wages. Yeah, so low prices sounded like exploitation. We're tired of being fired and we're tired of being harassed. So if you're going to define your business purpose on basic commodities like price and quality and availability, it's going to be a very mean journey. So what Walmart did is after all of this bad press, they changed their slogan line. After 19 years, they went from always low prices. They switched their slogan line to save money, live better. Now, this was a change in the entire focus of the company. Walmart is still selling product features, but those features now are empowering customers' lives. They need to remind customers of what low prices empowered. Will you find your dad's smile in aisle 14? A long-awaited journey in aisle 10. Yeah, because when you save money on the little things, it adds up to life's more amazing things. Walmart saves the average family $3,100 a year, no matter where you shop. What will you do with your savings? Save money, live better. Walmart. No, John, I see that smile on your face. Yeah, Grandpa got to come visit. It feels good, doesn't it? Yeah, very heartwarming ad, it really is. So what Walmart did is they showed our caveman that they weren't just some greedy company that were in it for themselves. They wanted customers to see exactly what low prices would empower. Walmart's still about low prices. They always will be. But those low prices now have a customer-obsessed mission. So Walmart started out its mission as a product-obsessed company, always low prices. But then they grew it to have a purpose that resonated deeply with their audience. Save money, live better. And now as the Black Lives Matter and the COVID crisis have arisen together, Walmart has stayed true to its core mission. It hasn't wandered off by offering these hollow reassurances. It stayed true to its messaging. In these tough and scary times, we're never going to stop helping our customers to live better. And they're going to support their community with lower prices that can help all of us get through this storm together. So, John, this is what we've got to make sure we're doing with our customers. We've got, no matter what business we're in, whether we're an entrepreneur starting a business or running our own business now, we've got to make sure that our product features clearly have a customer-obsessed mission. Now, most of the time, you can find that that's not the case. It usually tends to be about us. It used to be dependent about, hey, my product's great. Here are my cool features. You're going to love me. As opposed to my sole mission is to help you 
to live better. My sole mission is to help you in some way to get through this tough time and, and to prosper. It's phenomenal. Yeah, it's an amazing mission that they did, especially as hated as they have been. Oh, absolutely. Simon Sinek talks about how they lost their why when they lost their founder, Sam Walton. And it seems like maybe they've, they've gotten their why back a little bit right Let's now. Let's hope. I want to ask a couple of questions. When you study the brain, and I know you boil it down to its simplest form for us on The Entrepreneur, you, know, you did the caveman brain versus the, you know, the evolved brain. Is it really that simple? Are there other nuances in there or is it really that black and white? You know, John, it's it's incredibly complicated. You know, trying to guess exactly what people's behavior is, is is just crazy complicated because there's just so many variables that are there. You know, we throw people inside of these brain scanners and then I'll I'll look at them, you know, play them an ad or show them something. And then I'll go, did you like that? And they'll go, I love that. And we can look at their brain, look at the eye tracking, and we can see that they actually didn't like it. They were distracted. They were looking off. Their brain wasn't stimulated. But they want to believe that they liked it. And isn't that the age-old issue with focus groups? You put 12 people in a room that don't know each other, and a hierarchy evolves you know, immediately. The guy's got an opinion, and then everybody wants to be liked, so they go along with that person's opinion. And there's the one person who wants to be contrarian, so they say just the opposite. And nobody's really honestly opening their heart and showing you what's really going on, or I guess opening their brain and showing you what's really going on. Yeah. You know, there, there's a, a saying in, in our business that if you want to know how somebody really feels about something, the worst thing you can do is ask them. Wow. Because we have no idea how we feel about things. That 85% of our behavior is absolutely subconscious. And we, we're in touch with the conscious part, but that's just 15%. Let's just take, if you don't mind, a, a couple of minutes. You started, like I said, you started working in, in, in were you in the newsroom or in the marketing department of, of local TV stations? Both, really. I, I started in a local TV station. I did content. I was a producer. I, I was, a, you know, a director. I, I was all different jobs. I, I was just easily distracted. <laughs> and it, am I remembering correctly? It wasn't a large market, right? It was a, it was a relatively medium-sized market station. Yeah, a little tiny market. Charleston, oh. South Carolina is where, is where I started. So how did you make the leap from working for someone, you know, receiving a paycheck every two weeks, what made you say, I'm going to go out and do this on my own? Did you see a problem and you wanted to solve it or you just always had an itch to own your own company? You know, John, I, I, was, uh, I was really blessed and then I got fired. Oh, <laughs> so, and oh. and l- let me tell you, that man did me the biggest favor of my life. I didn't know it at the time. But what we see, particularly in times like recessions like, like now, is, is that people will get fired or they'll, they'll take a job. And they end up not working out. And in the downturn, they think, well, now's the time for me to start a brand new, new business. Well, there's not a lot of business right now. So for me, I happened to get fired at the perfect time. It was when the economy was booming up. And just by dumb luck, I, I was there. But the big thing that I did, John, that, that I look back on that I, I think really worked was that I made myself a specialist in a very specific problem. So what I did was I knew I wanted to make the entrepreneurial step, but I needed to find the most bleeding, horrible, terrible, expensive problem that the industry had. So I went out and just started doing informational interviews. I probably did a hundred of them over the course of probably about six months. I tried to do like one a day. It'd be a coffee or it, it would be just a quick phone interview. And the question that I would ask people is I would say, Tell me specifically what it is, a problem that you're having right now that's really expensive, that if you could fix it, it would revolutionize the industry. And I made myself a specialist in that thing. Wow. But you've evolved. You didn't stay in that one thing. You must have 
asked yourself or the industry that question two or three times over the past couple of decades that I've known you? Many times. And, and I've had, you know, I've reinvented myself many times because as things have gone down, as, as we've seen, you know, the, the broadcasting and the cable industry, you know, have some real problems. The revenue streams not as healthy as it used to be there. So I'm going to be opening up new streams of business. But it always begins with those interviews that I have with decision leaders. I usually reach out on LinkedIn a lot, social media, just have really quick little interviews, asking them about what that specific problem is. And now when you're looking to make that leap to either a new job or to become an entrepreneur, you don't show up and kind of go, hi, I'm generic guy who's got, you know, skills just like everybody else. You come back in and kind of go, I'm a specialist in solving this specific problem, and I'm ready to supercharge your revenue to, by coming in and fixing this problem for you. And they're like, please work for me. <laughs> Such a great way to, to switch the power. You now have all the power because you have what they need, solutions. Do you have a toughest professional moment, though? I mean, I, I've known you a long time, and you certainly seem to, to zig and zag in all the right ways. But did you stub your toe along the way somewhere that I didn't see? You bet, John. I've, gosh, I've had so many stubs of, along the, the way. It started, first of all, with that, with that getting fired you know, that, that I had. I really thought you know, my, my career was, was over. I was a new manager. I'd had my shot at managing for the first time, and I just walked into a situation that, that didn't work well. The company that I, I was at, there were eight managers. They fired seven of us, and I was number seven. <laughs> you know, and so all my buddies are taking a bullet one after the other, and you know they were just looking to you know to clean house. It didn't matter what what my skills were. Those were were the times when I when I always came back to what specifically were those skills that were going to be revolutionary. What were those things that I could school myself in? So it's really about learning. And, and it's really about making sure that you learn something that really is of value. So many of us in our professional education end up becoming a great generalist. I can do a little of this, a little of that, a little of this. And it makes us very forgettable. But if you can make yourself a specialist in one specific thing. So right now, mine is about better decisions through brain science. I help people make more money by specifically making smarter financial decisions. There's the pain point. You say you're losing money because your brain is tricking you into making bad decisions. I can show you how to stop that. It's got an ROI on it. And that's what all of us need, a solution and a specialty with an ROI. That's excellent. And, and I do want to, like I said, this is a podcast and I know that the majority of my, the folks listen to this, but I am going to encourage everyone to go to the website and watch this presentation because so many of us are having to do business like this across a Zoom and the presentation that I'm hoping folks are, are watching right now, but have go, you know, will go and watch that you just gave was so seamless. And I'm confident that the people that are in sales that listen to this would love to be able to give a presentation that was that dynamic. You put yourself in the screen at just the right times. You took yourself out when you wanted my eye to focus on the content that was in the middle of the screen. And yet I'm assuming you're doing this from home. Exactly, John. So what I'm doing here is I'm using Zoom, which we've just been using for, for years. And what's so cool is these online tools have just gotten so much more powerful. And particularly as we've moved into the pandemic now, it's going to get crazy good. There's brand new services like Hopin, which are like virtual conventions. So what we did is I started with the best meeting technology in the business, and that's this Zoom software here. So this gives us the things like the great meeting planning and the sharing and all the security of traditional meeting planning software. But if you've been to a lot of these meetings, you know they have a tendency to look like this, you know, yeah, just, just a lot of yakking heads. You know, and everybody's just saying, oh, can I just answer a few more emails because I am dying here. This thing is so, so boring. So what I did was look to the world of live streaming. 
These are the systems that power rock concerts on Instagram and Facebook Live. In her second bedroom and, and make calls that are as dynamic as this, or did this take you six months to get figured out? No question, John, my stuff is very complicated. But there are tools that are incredibly simple that you can do this incredibly easy now. So the software that I love and the one that I encourage your listeners to take a look at is called Ecamm Live. That's E-C-A-M-M-L-I-V-E. Check them out. With a simple laptop and a camera and a microphone, you can give these kind of switching presentations. And lo and behold, it ends up being something that, that can really showcase the dynamic stuff that you have. Reaching through that camera right now is tough to do. We usually can do it in person. With this kind of system, you can do it easily and you can do it affordably. It's about 30 bucks a month is really wow. all it is. So I'd encourage your, your team to take a look at it. I do want to ask you a couple of questions about you and your journey, if that's okay. Sounds great, John. Yes. Have you got a team now? You, I know you're producing this presentation solo, but I imagine you can't be doing all of this work and research solo. Absolutely, John. You know, I am the king of offshoring is, is what I am. So I've got a team of people all over the world that handle all of these. With offshoring now, you can do stuff that's so tremendously cost efficient. So for example, my assistant lives in the Philippines. My editor lives in Kiev, Russia. My SEO guy lives in Africa. My copywriter lives in the UK. I've got a team of people from all over the world that I can bring together using this technology right here. I meet with my assistant every day. And typically, she, she's in the Philippines, so I will meet with her at like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, which is 5 a.m. her time. And lo and behold, I wake up in the morning and the projects are all done. So now this is right out of Tim Ferriss's five-hour work week. But was that your motivation? Because I want to ask some specific questions. Or did this grow organically because you're just the most efficient man I've ever met? It really grew organically for me because I've always done, you know, I've done a lot of traveling all over the world. And so I've, I've always been intrigued by, you know, working with incredibly qualified people in, in other countries. Frankly, a lot of the reason I do it is because I want to learn about the world. You know, it's been so cool to work with my video editor in Russia and learn all about Russia. I, I didn't know about it. Well, so it's kind of like tourism for me in, in some ways, you know, using, using Zoom. But I've been able to, to make buddies all, all over the place. I've got to give a shout out to Charles Dyke, who's my audio engineer, who is in Nigeria. How did you find yeah, these think. people? Are you using you know, these gig websites, Upwork or, or Fiverr? Are you using those? Or how are you finding these people? Because I'm, I'm also confident there are folks right now listening that go, I want an assistant from the Philippines. Yeah, you bet. You know, what, what I do, John, is, is I use those services really well. My favorite one is Upwork. And I, I really use them a lot. I use Production Hub. Again, if I need somebody locally, it's another great, great one to, to use. But you have to make sure if you're going to use these offshore services, you've got to make sure that you really do a good job of vetting the, the people. So what I typically do is when I'm looking for somebody new to do something. So, for example, one of the things that I'm looking for now is an SEO coach. I'm going to look for somebody that coaches me on a couple of you know, days a week to do that. So what I do is I basically come up with an assignment that takes about two hours. And then I hire 10 people to do it, okay? And then I see who comes back quick, who hits it out of the park, who does an amazing job of it. And then that temporary job, then what I'll do is there'll usually be one or two people that do an amazing job. Then I'll take those one or two people and I'll give them a one-day job. So the jobs are not real jobs. They're just interview jobs is what they are. And by the time I'm done with that two-step process, I've got somebody who's fantastic. What a phenomenal vetting process because now... 
it takes more work to replace somebody six months from now than it probably does for you to do that. The two weeks it takes you to find the perfect person. And it sounds like you've put Absolutely. your team together now. Yes. And you know, what, what's great is these are people that I can go back to again and again and, and again. But you know, the, the important thing is there are wonderful people out there, but you've got to spend some time finding them. And then once you got them, you, you'll keep them forever. Most of the, the contractors that I have that have been with me four or five, some even 10 years, you know, wow. through all the, these years. It's great for them and it's, it's great for me as well. And particularly if you're an entrepreneur, you don't have a lot of money to start out. You can't hire those, you know, big contract people because you simply don't have the budget. Well, this is a way that you can do it inexpensively. And what's been so great, John, is I had an opportunity to even help some people in these poor countries to help uplift their, their lives. So my assistant, she lives in Cebu. It's a little tiny island in the middle of the Philippines. And let me tell you, I think she's the smartest person that I've ever met. But she was in this little poor village is, is where she was. So she's been working with me, you know, probably about five years from now. They bought their first car. When she first came with me, what she was hoping to get was a desk. Wow. And now, now she has a desk. They have a car. They have a house. They have land. Right. They're saving for, for their future. And their life has been transformed. And you have the ability to do that as well, just with simply hiring somebody who's in a poor country. I have great luck. My, my favorite that I'm biased for is people in the Philippines. Okay. Incredible internet, really good work ethic, very family-based, really, you know, do what they, they say. Those folks I've, I've had a really great uh, experience with. That's phenomenal. And I'm so thrilled that we stumbled upon this because I read The 5-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, and I was, I was all in on outsourcing everything. And even though he gave kind of some, some how-tos, I never, I, I never got that virtual assistant that I wanted, whatever, six, eight years ago when I read that book. And you've just broken down how to do it, how to vet it. You gave the tangible website. So I can't thank you enough for that. You've always been, you know, one of the most relevant thinkers and thought leaders that, that I've known. How do you stay relevant in a time of such constant change? You know, John, the, the big thing is I think you've got to practice what I call newsfeed hygiene. Okay. And, and it, it is so easy to, to simply gather that kind of general stuff all, all the time, whether it's your Twitter feed or on, on Facebook or, or whatever. I take the time to get rid of those voices that I know are not good for me, those coffinous, fear-mongering you know, sites that, that, that'll do that. So the big thing for me is I, I get most of my news and information off of Twitter, but I've got, I've got three 38-inch monitors on my desk gigantic, big, big monitors. And it's just got all the smartest people in the world in the feed, all the thought leaders who I think are amazing at, at what they do. And that rolls by me all day, day long. So what I try to do is I read a lot of books. I, I probably read a hundred books a, a year and I don't watch a lot of television. So if you'll allow me to hack your Twitter feed, can you give me a handful of names? You know, John, what well, probably a good idea. How, how about I, I send you a list and you can include it in, in the notes with the podcast? Love it. Yeah. That way you guys can get some, some of my favorite people. But John, again, I'm not sure these are going to be people that your audience is going to want to follow because they're brain science geeks. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, listen, and that's probably not who you want to follow. <laughs> fair enough. But we'll, I'll tell you, we'll, we'll put a couple of your, of your highlights yeah. in the show notes. How about books? What are you reading right now? And have you got like a holy smokes, this is a must read for anybody who wants to reinvent the world? Sure. My, my favorite book right now is, is a book by Ezra Klein called Why We're Polarized. And it really gets down to the specific reason of why we have such, such contentiousness right, right now. There's a great video on Netflix you might want to take, take a look at. It's called The Social, I think it's called The Social Network. 
I'll have to again confirm that we, we can include that on on the notes. Yeah, because isn't the uh, again, social network the Facebook movie? I thought you're right. I'm, I've I've got the name wrong. I'll get you what the what the specific name name of it is. But basically, it's it's about how social media influences us on a brainstem level, and you know, fascinating stuff like like that. I am a a big fan of a lot of neuroscience books and neurofinance kind of books, so I, I read a lot of those. I read a lot about technology. There's um, Kevin Kelly's book about the future. He's one of my favorites. He's from a former Wired editor. He's a, a wonderful guy to, to read as well. I'm going to ping you offline and we'll include a bunch of this stuff in the show notes because I do want to pick your brain on some of your other books and not put you on the spot right now. You've got a Great phenomenal time. video out that I watched recently and it talks about choosing a mentor. And you really flipped that upside down for me. Do you mind talking a little bit about it? And I'll, I'll include a link to that video also in the show notes. You bet, John. So one of the things that we have a tendency to, to do is when we pick someone that we want to emulate, we usually go for the people that we really dig is what we do. You know, we go and find a mentor and we look at, you know, we, we look at that person in our business who's just successful all, all the time is what they have. But if you look at what that's going to do for you, it causes us to suffer something called survivorship bias. And what that means is, is that the people that are on the downside of what you want to do aren't around to vote in anymore. So for example, you know, when you see that lottery winner, you see him kind of going, yes, I won the lottery winner and I did all these really great things. They don't ever show the people that bought 10,000 lottery tickets and you never see it. Or have you seen those people who live to be 100 where they go, yeah, I've been drinking bacon, grease and bourbon every morning for, you know, most of my life. And that's my secret to making it to 100. Well, everybody who everybody else who did that died and are not around to actually tell you that that's not the best thing to, to do. And this is what happens when we do mentors. What we typically do is we look at the people, you know, like uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and we kind of go, yes, Mark dropped out of college, started his business, and that's what I should do. Well, you're never going to hear from the thousands of people that dropped out of college and flamed out, and right. you'll never hear from them again. Want to be a successful Hollywood actor? Yeah, you'd kind of go after all those really successful actors in Hollywood. But again, you won't hear from the guy that, that flamed out and moved back to Poughkeepsie because he couldn't be an actor. So with choosing mentors, one of the important things that you've got to do is, yes, pick that person that was successful. But you also need people who weren't successful because they're going to be experts in what failed and why it failed. Most of what business is these days is managing things that go wrong. And the people who do that well, the people who have the best way of seeing exactly what will go wrong is someone who is a victim of it. So you need that yin to the successful yang. That's brilliant. That's so good. The video, like I said, I'll put a link uh, as well in the show notes because it was, was a paradigm shift for me because all of my mentors, I, you know, I've tried to idolize the most successful people out there. What a great way to put it. Have you got time to talk about camp? I'm sure. We call it setting up camp to create culture. It's an acronym, creativity, awareness, mindfulness, passion, and people. I'm going to start with creativity. You completely debunked the myth of right brain, left brain, because you are whole brain. You are technical, you are detailed, you are scientific, and you're wildly creative. So you have to believe that there's no such thing as you're either creative or you're not creative. Am I right? Absolutely, John. And you know, what, what I do as far as creativity is I borrow mercilessly. You know, I just immerse myself in all the best and greatest ideas that are that are out there. And that's where my creativity comes is just from staying in touch with those people that are those amazing mentors, those people that are helping me to see new ways to, to think. I'm definitely not that creative. But what I am is, is somebody who really does a good job of seeing all the stuff that, that's out there. 
But again, you got to have time to do that. And the only way you'll have time to do that is if you cut out the stuff that isn't working. And that's what I didn't invite people to do. Find the stuff that wastes your time and stop doing it. Well, I was actually, there was a question I was going to ask you earlier and I opted not to. Do you have a stop doing list? Do you, are you constantly aware of, you know what, I'm going to remove this from my life or do you purge once and just move forward? Oh, for me, it's, it's an ongoing process and I, I slip back and I, I reach a tough time and I just want to go get some, you know, big jug of ice cream and sit there and eat and watch bad movies. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we all get to those places, but I'm going to hop back on that, that horse again. I try to build knowledge building into my, my daily routine. I'm a big audiobook guy. And so while I'm, you know, doing the lawn and, you know, cooking dinner and chopping vegetables and things like that, I've always got an audiobook book on. And by doing that, that's how I'm able to read a couple books a, a week. And I really enjoy it. So I, I find books that I really like. And then it's not, oh, I got to do the lawn. It's, oh, I get to finish my book. It's so funny you say that because I remember a period in my life when I needed, I needed some Graham Newell advice and your schedule was jammed. And but you could you could hear the urgency in my voice that I, I I needed to get you on the phone. And I don't know if you even remember this or not. We you took probably a forty minute phone call with me from the treadmill. I mean, I don't know if you were running or walking or whatever you were doing, but you were on the treadmill for the entire time because that's when you could fit me in. So a, it speaks to your character, but also speaks to being super efficient with your time. The A is awareness. How do you stay self aware without becoming self critical? You know, John, that, that's so much about that, that ability for you to kind of take that, that time and really reflect. I try to, to have a time each day when I do a little meditation. It's not long. It's just, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes is what, what I do. But I really do that, that time when I, when I check in and see exactly what it is that's bothering me right, right now. That is pretty precious time. I usually do mine um, in the late afternoon when I'm, when I'm winding down after I've had that day. And I try to kind of look back on what I did on the day. Did I do the, the things that I wanted? Was I the person that, that I wanted to be today? But for so many of us, we, we get so busy that we don't make time for that. And I think it's one of the most important components in every person's life is taking that time to assess, am I doing the things that are important to me right now? Am I really giving myself the attention that I need and the time and space that I need in order to become aware of what's really there? That's phenomenal. I'm going to ask you the other side of, of the awareness question. That is, and I think you've already answered it with your Twitter feed, but how do you stay industry aware? Is it just, like you said, being on those three giant monitors watching these brilliant people on Twitter? Yeah. And what I do is I like to flip it on, on its head. And I talked about this earlier. The way you stay industry aware is to become incredibly aware of what is not your industry. Pick a lane and become a specialist in it. Do not become a generalist. Pick a problem and become a specialist in it. And those feeds that I have are all about those specific problems. And that's what your feeds need to be as, as well. So those general things of, you know, watching people that you don't really care that much about and hanging out on Facebook with people that you had back in college, I've left those behind. Okay. <laughs> you know, what I'm about now is I'm about interesting, fun, fascinating things that get me jazzed. And my feeds are optimized to that. Brilliant. The M stands for mindfulness, and you've already shared with us your mindfulness practice. You said you, you do meditate every day, you reflect. Do you have anything else that kind of calms your brain in, in the middle of COVID chaos? Do you journal? I know you exercise. Yeah, exercising really helps me as well. That's kind of great thinking time, and I'll put on some, some tunes for, for that. I also take, take some time. I've, I've, I've got a little bit of a, a tricky back, and so in order to keep it healthy, I'm, I'm required about every hour or, or two to do a little stretch. 
And believe it or not, it's been one of the best things that ever happened to my mind. Wow. <laughs> it's just, just to take that that quick little, you know, two or three minutes for, for that stretch just is, is really fantastic. So I, I really don't, don't enjoy having a tweaked back, but this keeps me honest. Excellent. The first P stands for passion. And you are such a passionate person and presenter. But I do think a lot of times people get caught up in, I've got to find my passion. That's got to be my vocation. I, I'm not passionate about data entry, but that's what I do. And, and they, you get inside your head. Do you have to be passionate about what it is you do for a living? Or can your passion be what you do from 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. and not necessarily 9 to 5? It, it doesn't have to be. Passion is something that you develop. And I think most people in, in the world are waiting for that lightning bolt to hit them. I'll just know when this thing happens. And the way that passions develop is by trying a lot of things. You got to run down a lot of blind alleys and try things. I think that's been the secret to my success is that, you know, for every one project that I do, I have nine that fail and I've become wow. really good at, at, at failing, but I just keep running down alleys one after the, the other. I don't expect them to succeed, but the one that does succeed that both makes me money, gets me on fire because I'm, I'm loving it. Those are the places that, that I want to be. So it's really all about trying a lot of things. The passion will develop when you've got a lot of choices. But if you're waiting, sitting in a room in your chair for lightning to hit you of what your passion is going to be, it'll never come. That's great, great, great advice. And finally, the last P uh, is people. What's the most important people skill a leader can have or maybe an entrepreneur can have? You know, I think the, the biggest thing is giving them your time and your, and your loyalty. They need to feel that it's okay to make a lot of mistakes and that you'll still have their, their back. Because when, when you stop doing that, that's when they, they stop trying and stop taking risks. I've been able, with my offshoring work, to bring in some amazing people to, to my world. And what's neat is we've had things go, go wrong all the time. Building that culture of it's okay if things fail here. Now, we, we don't want them to fail because of lack of detail or lack of attention. We want them to fail because we took a big risk and we tried and it didn't work. But making sure that they know that and they understand that and they're in that game as well is one of the most important things that we can do to make sure that we can move quickly, stay nimble, and get into sectors that are going to really work for everybody. Just incredible advice. That's all I have. And I don't want to take any more of your time, but are we leaving anything on the cutting room floor? Any advice you'd give today's leaders and managers that we haven't covered or, man, we've covered a bunch. You know, John, the, the big thing now is that business is being remade now. We are definitely in what is going to become, you know, the time that we're going to talk about 20 years from now, because this is such an amazing time of, of transition. When you look at things like the Zoom technology that we have, the way that offshoring is, is coming on, the way that these kinds of technologies and, you know, working remotely and all that these things happen. The technology, everything is moving fat forward so incredibly lightning now. And now is that time for you to do it. Is it the time for you to throw out your shingle and start a business? You have to take a look and see if the market's there. But what we know is, is it is the time for you to up your skill set and to look for what that next step will be for you. So go back and find out what that new problem is that you're going to become a specialist in. If whether you're doing entrepreneurial work or you're doing it in your business, it's going to make you an industry leader. It's going to make you coveted is what it's going to be. Go find an amazingly terrible problem and become an expert in it. And there's never been a better time to do that than right now. Graham, thank you so much for your time. What a wonderful conversation, man. Thank you. Thanks, John. I appreciate you having me on. My name's John Ziegler. 
This is The Entrepreneur. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Setup Camp with two Ps on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.